Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of We Have Ways of Making You Talk. If you're downloading the podcast today, November the 11th, 2021, it is, of course, Remembrance Day. We asked our listeners to send us the name of someone they wanted us to remember and a brief biography to give us all a sense of their lives. Here is a selection of those human stories from a truly global war. First up, Kevin Thorne. Robert Owen Nash, my grandfather, served from 1939 to 1945 in the Royal Navy. Born in Carow, Cardiff, to a Jamaican father and Irish mother, he grew up in Tiger Bay. He was always the only man of colour on his ships. He fought in the Atlantic, Mamance convoys, Mediterranean Burma and the Pacific. The only time his ship was sunk was the Ark Royal in the Mediterranean, where only one of the ship's crew was lost. A lucky guy to have around, and definitely not an Uncle Albert. He was in the Pacific, off the coast of Japan, at the end of the war, and saw the atomic bomb explosion from the sea. This left a lasting impression on him for the rest of his life. Happily, he survived the war, and died in 1976. Regards, Kevin Thorne. This comes from Simon Kovach. I'd like to remember Flying Officer Reginald Stringer, DFC 
shot down by a Junkers 88 that he in turn shot down on the 11th of April 1943. Reg had served on the front lines from December 1940, flying hazardous shipping missions to Norway and over the Atlantic in his Blenheim before transferring to fly the newer Bowfighters. He first flew them in combat during a temporary detachment to Malta to cover the pedestal convoy and then flew many long-range missions over the Bay of Biscay, shooting down several aircraft before his sad loss with his navigator, pilot officer Stan Hunter. I have no family ties to Reg, but several years ago I was given his flying logbooks as a keepsake, which I treasured for a long time before being contacted by his 80-year-old son, who had seen a post I made on a forum about his father. I was happy to reunite him with his father's logbooks, and on Christmas Eve 2020, he took delivery of them once again in America, where he now lives. As one of life's little strange coincidences, I was a former RAF pilot too, and received my wings at the same base as Reg, along with flying out of many of the same bases he flew from. But maybe strangest of all, my great-uncle was killed a few months after Reg, flying the same type of enemy aircraft, a Junkers 88, that he was killed by in turn. So maybe if it's OK, I'd like to remember my great-uncle... Gefreiter Karl Frass too, both young men fighting and sadly dying for their country. Steve Peckham writes, I'd like to remember my great uncle, Cranston Peckham. He and his brother, my grandpop, signed up under the name Packham rather than Peckham, as they thought having their surname on buses was common. He served as a driver, and I was told he died in Passchendaele, but my subsequent research discovered he actually died in March. 2017, in Greece. I am going to be the first from my family to visit him next year at Karasuli Military Cemetery, and I will tell him about our family, and in particular about his brother and his nephew, my dad who served in the Second World War. This is from David Dickinson. I would like to remember my friend. In 1984, Stephen Wormald was in my platoon at Sandhurst. As young second lieutenants, we had a lot in common and got on really well. I remember his ready smile, sense of humour and his positive approach to life. We had a whole careers to look forward to. After Sandhurst, he joined the 2nd Battalion Royal Anglian Regiment. On the 29th of April 1994, as part of the UN mission to the former Yugoslavia, he was killed in a landmine explosion in Ratchchi, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Stephen was just 28 years old. The Land Rover he was travelling in hit an anti-tank mine at 3.15pm local time, three miles from Gorni Fakouf. The vehicle was on a minor road and appears to have been on a reconnaissance patrol. Three local guides were also in the Land Rover and were injured. Stephen was a loving husband, son, brother and loyal friend. Thank you. Paula Towell got in touch. My dad, John Quinn, was a Royal Marine he was taken prisoner in Hong Kong and was held captive for four years. He was in a prisoner of war camp in Japan, situated 11 miles from Nagasaki. He survived, and although extremely proud of being a Royal Marine, he became totally opposed to nuclear weapons and always wore his CND badge. Ian Laurie writes simply, My great-grandfather, Sapper Edgar Redding, died 6th of June 1918, aged 36 years old. Mark Etheridge got in touch. I'd like to remember Lance Bombardier George Copsey of 301st Field Regiment, East African Artillery, 
and the passengers and crew of the SS Cadiv Ismail. A glass merchant from East London, George married my mum's Aunt Edith in 1939. On the 5th of February 1944, the regiment left Mombasa on the SS Cadiv Ismail, bound for Colombo with various passengers, including 53 nurses and their matron. After a week at sea, the ship was torpedoed by the Japanese submarine I-27 and sank within three minutes. I-27 was then attacked and damaged by the convoy escort and sought refuge beneath the floating survivors from the Cadiv Ismail. In a scene reminiscent of the cruel sea, the escorting destroyers attacked and sank the I-27 and most of the survivors were killed. Of 1,511 on board the Cadiv Ismail, only 214 survived. It was the largest loss of service women in the history of the Commonwealth. Aunt Edith never remarried and lived alone until she passed away in 1993. Malcolm Kelly writes, I would like to remember Flying Officer Bob Middleton, 431 Squadron RCAF. He was what he liked to call a nosy navigator, who flew 33 ops, including 10 on Halifaxes and 23 on Lancasters. The crew came through without a scratch for 33 breakfasts, leaving him to often observe, luck is 33 eggs. And that's the name of his book which came out this summer. Bob was a great friend and a mentor on my book. He died a month ago at 98 years old, sharp as a tack to the end. Bless you, Bob, per adua ad astra. This one is from Louis Hoskin. My great-uncles James and Frank Hoskin were Plymouth boys, two of ten children. In 1912, Frank emigrated to Australia with his parents and most of his siblings. James, who was older, remained in England. In 1915, Frank joined the 9th AIF Battalion and returned to Europe, being wounded on the Somme. James was called up to the 2nd Battalion Royal Marines Light Infantry in 1916. In 1917, both units found themselves at the sharp end of the Third Battle of Ypres. There the brothers would meet their fate. On the 20th of September, the Aussies successfully attacked the Menin Road, but Frank was killed. Then, just over a month later, on the 26th of October, the Marines entered the fray near Violet Farm. There, James too was killed falling barely 10 kilometres away from where his brother had died. Neither body was recovered. It is unclear whether the brothers knew where the other was posted and if James was aware of his brother's death before going over the top, but it must have been a devastating blow to the family. Private James Hoskin is commemorated at Tyne Cot, while Private Frank Hoskin's name can be found on the Menin Gate. Rest in peace. David Patterson writes... Flying Officer Ramsey Mackenzie Habkirk, 22 years old, was born in Wingham, Ontario, Canada. Ramsey is the only Canadian in Tilly Sersoul Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery, and when I found him, I had to know his story. He was a member of 620 Squadron RAF flying Stirling bombers. They towed gliders on D-Day and otherwise were used as part of 38 Special Ops Group to drop agents and supplies to the resistance. On the night of the 4th, 5th of August 1944, Ramsey was second bomb aimer on a multinational inter-service crew that included two Kiwis, four Brits and Ramsey, as well as two RASC dispatchers to drop the panniers of supplies to the resistance. Their aircraft took off from RAF Fairford, but it was hit by flak and crashed near Lisieux. All on board were killed. They are all buried together at Tilly-Sersoul, and every time I travel to Normandy, 
I visit his grave and leave a Canadian flag to let him and any other visitors know that he is not forgotten. Per adua ad astra. Caractacus writes, I'd like to remember Sergeant Neil Wikes and his crew. Neil was a Centurion tank commander and he and his crew were all killed in action in 1952 in Korea in a forgotten action in a forgotten war. They were with the 5th Royal Inniskilling Dragoon Guards and he died aged just 22. He was also my uncle and I never had a chance to meet him. For 45 years, Neil's heartbroken mum campaigned to have his name put on the local war memorial but the government refused to allow it because Korea wasn't classed as an actual war. She passed away without ever seeing his name inscribed. It's finally there now. This is why memorials and remembrance matter. Al Allen writes, Lance Sergeant John Edgar Harvey was a member of 6th Heavy Anti-Aircraft Regiment RA. He fought through the 1940 France campaign getting out at Dunkirk. Having spent 1941 working in AA sites in the UK, he was sent to Kirkuk in Iraq only for the regiment to be rerouted to Singapore in January 1942. From Singapore he was sent to Java where his unit fought to keep the Japanese off airfields using their guns against Japanese ground troops. He was captured in March 1942 on Java. Lance Sergeant Harvey survived Changi, a hell ship, and camps in Japan. His MI-9 Liberation had an attached sheet of tracing paper listing the names of all his comrades who died on the hell ship, finishing with the words, They died like soldiers. Lance Sergeant Harvey was liberated, only to die of jaundice and complications from his time in the camps in the UK, on the 10th of December 1945. I will also be remembering CPO William T. Hennessy, USN, one of my finest friends who I served with in Iraq in 2005. He was in the 82nd Airborne, the US Marine Corps, and finally ended up in the Navy. He tragically passed away in 2013. Semper fee, Mac, as he always used to say. Cara Black got in touch to say, I'd like to remember Odette Pilpul, who was born in Bordeaux and worked at a local town hall in Paris during the occupation. She sent her son, my friend, Jean-Marc, to Brittany for safety, while she hid downed RAF pilots, forgot to put Jewish inhabitants on deportation lists, duplicated ration and ID cards until she was arrested. Sent to Birkenau, and then in 1944 to HASAG, a little-known work camp outside Leipzig, she survived. Part of her life's work was contacting the families of the interned French women from the half-destroyed lists she'd recovered at the camp. Her efforts are little known, but there is a street named after her here in Bordeaux. She was awarded a medal from Yad Vashem. Nigel Leany writes, My Uncle Roy, RM, D-Day and Valkyran, Uncle George, one para, North Africa and Arnhem, and my dad, four para, Palestine. They were my role models and representatives of that most special generation, and all have sadly left us. They shall not grow old, in my memory at least. Cameron McTighe got in touch. My great-great-uncles, Chief Engineer Officer William Burton and Second Engineer Officer James Burton, were both Merchant Navy. William was lost at sea due to enemy action on the 16th of March 1942, when the SS Stangarth was sunk with all hands. James, known as Jim, was lost at sea presumed drowned on Christmas Eve 1943, when his ship, MV Dumana, 
was torpedoed by U-515 off the Ivory Coast. My dad has a series of letters written between Jim and his mother, my great-great-grandmother. The last of the letters was written by a mate of Jim, who describes how when the ship was hit, Jim left to go and switch on the emergency lighting which had failed, rather than immediately think to abandon ship. He was never seen again by any of his shipmates. This is from Declan Hargreaves. My granddad Percy, being a hundred years my senior, always comes to mind on Remembrance Day. He was a cavalryman in the First World War and a ration distribution allocator within West Yorkshire in the second. Also, as I am a train enthusiast and rail worker, I think of those from the railways that fought and continued their railway work during wartime in theatre and at home, some giving their lives in service such as fireman James Nightle GC, who died in the Soham rail disaster on the 2nd of June 1944. Mark Curzon writes, Guardsman John Patterson Prentice of the 3rd Battalion Scots Guards of the 6th Guards Armoured was killed in action on the 30th of July 1944 at Des Loges, Normandy, on Operation Bluecoat. He was a gunner operator on a Churchill tank of the right flank. He left two little girls, including my wife's late mother in Larkhall, Scotland. They are both at rest now, together in Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery, Otto-les-Bagues. You are remembered. Simon Ashcroft got in touch. My grandfather's brother, Albert Mowbray Nason, of the 13th Kensington's Princess Louise's own, the London Regiment, was killed in action on the 9th of May 1915 at the Battle of Obers Ridge. He was killed along with 90% of his battalion. My grandfather was also in the same battalion but survived and served throughout the Great War. He returned uninjured except for the unknown demons that haunted him. This is from Rob Mackenzie. I want to tell you about my wife's uncle, Soteris Kalostipis, who died on March the 10th, 1941, fighting against the Italians in Albania. He took part in the battle for Hill 731. It was one of the fiercest battles of World War II, lasting 14 days and truly deserves the title of the Forgotten Battle. The Italian invasion of Greece started on October the 28th, 1940, and was repulsed. The Greeks had forced the Italians back into Albania, and as the winter set in, they set up a defensive line in southern Albania. The Italians launched a counter-offensive on March the 9th. At the start of the battle... Hill 731 was defended by a battalion of the 5th Infantry Regiment. They came under heavy bombardment from the opening of the battle and it's estimated that 100,000 rounds were fired along a 6-kilometre front. During the first two days, the Italians attacked in division strength seven times, each preceded by a sustained artillery barrage. The fighting was intense and at close quarters. Sometime during the second day, my wife's uncle, Sotiris, was killed. The Greeks stood fast for another 12 days before Mussolini decided to call a halt to the assault. He'd been watching the battle and realised his troops were getting nowhere and were being slaughtered. This victory over Italy forced the Nazis to invade Greece through Bulgaria, and we know what happened then. Here in Greece, the defenders of Hill 731 are known as the Titans, and their sacrifice is likened to the Battle of Thermopylae, and rightly so. I am pleased to say that Sotiris is not forgotten, the street where I live is named in his honour. This is from Julian Brown. My grandfather, William Brown, was a corporal in the REME, Remy, with the 52nd Lowland. He wore mountain on his sleeve and trained in Scotland for operations in Norway for two years. 
but ended up, in typical military wisdom, deployed through the Low Countries. He survived the war, but the arthritis he subsequently suffered meant he never worked again in his pre-war engineering trade. He was a non-visible casualty of war service, which resulted in his family suffering lower income. He wasn't a frontline hero or gallantry medal winner. He didn't want to be ordered about in the army, so he didn't volunteer. But he always said he would go if his country asked him. And when he got the call, he met his lifelong oppo, Bert Cook, one of the three good things that came out of his war service. That and his respect for the people of Aberdeen from his time training there, and the people of Holland. He died before I was born, but I would have really loved to have had just one conversation with him. Daniel Woodrow writes, My grandfather, John Elliot, jumped on a boat from Kent as a 17-year-old to support the evacuation from Dunkirk because he was desperate to help. Like so many, he lied about his age to enlist and spent three years posted in India, where, amongst other things, he was the driver for Major General Ord Wingate and earned the Burma and Africa stars. He never wanted to revisit what had happened or glorify it in any way, but every now and again he would allow us glimpses of the love, affection and respect he held for his comrades, particularly the Gurkhas, of whom he couldn't speak highly enough. The older I get, the more inspirational I find his humility and quiet dignity, and the more grateful I am for the example he set our family on how to retain compassion and positivity in the bleakest of circumstances. Also, how to value and respect others, and how to make the world a better place one act of kindness at a time. Thank you, Grandad. John Cropper writes, My father, Donald Cropper, joined the West Kents in 1933, served in Palestine, and became an officer at the beginning of the war. He was initially on the south coast, where he had a platoon to cover about three miles of coast. Then he was seconded to the Malta Regiment as adjutant. After the siege of Malta, he was part of the fighting in Leros, where he lost an eye and was captured. Together with a small group of men, he escaped to Turkey and got back to the UK via North Africa. Next, he was in a training role in the Shetlands, and following that, he was part of T-Force until the end of the war. After the war, he retired as a major and worked in intelligence in Berlin and Hamburg. He rarely talked of the war, other than to say he had never had any regrets about joining the army. The only person he spoke with about the war was my uncle, who had been an NCO in the German army and was one of the few to survive captivity after Stalingrad. And a couple of names I'd like to mention on this Remembrance Day, the 11th of November 2021. The first is my grandfather, Walter Gregory, always known as Stork. He was a lieutenant in the Shiny Seventh, the London Regiment, and after training at Sutton Mandeville, serendipitously just five miles from where I live now in Wiltshire, he was posted to the Western Front and saw action at the Battle of Passchendaele. He was gassed on the 24th of October 1917, but fortunately survived. He died in 1960, and having barely spoken about his experience during the rest of his life, began talking about them in the delirium of his final days. The second is Captain Stan Perry, whose memorial service was this week on the 8th of November on what would have been his 98th birthday. Stan was the last officer of the wartime Sherwood Rangers, a friend and a man I admired hugely. It really does feel like the links with that extraordinary generation are slipping away. That's it for our Remembrance Day special. I'll be thinking of James Ritchie and Guy Weatherhead. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. 
We'll finish this episode in the only way appropriate. We shall remember them. Thank you.